Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, uh, welcome everybody to Teachers Talk Radio and this special interview with Darren Northcott, who's the national official for the NASUWT Teaching Union. Um, Darren, a huge thank you for joining us uh, today on Teachers Talk Radio for a little interview. Um, I've got a number of questions I want to ask you, um, but maybe I might actually start by saying, as as the NASUWT national official, can you tell us your typical day, a day in the life of Darren Northcott? Well, thank you very much. It's really good to to be with you. I don't think there's any typical day uh, that, that I have, but broadly, we've got three jobs in the team I work with at the NHWT. First of all, what we do is we provide advice and guidance to those within the union who make policy. And because unions are democracies, those are representatives of the elected membership. We provide advice and guidance to them so that they can make good informed policy decisions about all the things that matter to the members that they represent. So the second thing we do is we, once that policy is determined, we communicate and advocate for that policy publicly. So we can do that in writing. So that could be responses to government consultations or submissions to the House of Commons Select Committee. We engage with governments, inspectorates, regulators. Our job is to explain the union's position, advance that position, try and persuade those that have decision-making power of that position and also to defend that position as well if people don't understand it or they perhaps take a a different view. And then thirdly, what we do is because we're a membership organization, we provide support and advice to our members. That can be individually. We have a lot of people both who are serving teachers and are employed by the union who represent members individually, but also collectively as well. So with their employers, Um, with other organisations too. But our job is to go out there and make sure that we secure tangible, worthwhile outcomes um, for our members in terms of the very important job that they do. We look after teachers and leaders so that teachers and leaders in turn can look after children and young people. So that's a kind of broad overview of uh, what, what I and my colleagues do. Perfect. Well, let's let's get straight into this because um, you mentioned I want I want to talk about some of the sort of major things that have been going on. So the the obvious one to start with is the pay dispute, um, which happened recently. Now, there's been, you know, I sort of track social media regularly. I, I regularly use it, and there's a lot of teachers on there. And um, I don't know if you've seen there was a there was a meme that was created, which is basically two stick characters. And the, the one stood up and one sat down on a chair. One of them has a, a stick and they're kind of prodding the other mm. stick character. And it says, do something. And I've seen lots of people, um, whether they be NAS members or other members of other unions, I don't know, posting this meme, basically saying NAS didn't do anything during the pay dispute. They felt frustrated. They didn't hear anything from NAS. They felt as though NAS were selling them short a little bit. I wondered what your sort of response to that criticism is, because you must have seen it yourself. I think our response would be that we balloted our members for industrial action and we got that mandate. So we got a mandate for that industrial action, both strike action 
and action short of strike action. So that was important. Then the next day when we announced that, we got an offer from the government in terms of trying to progress that dispute. So that, those discussions and that's ongoing. But our members stood very firm in response to the challenges that they and all other teachers and leaders face. So I think we were very active in representing the interests of teachers and leaders. And because our members were resolute and determined, we got to a place where we made the government listen, where it wasn't really listening before. So I think that would be my response to any such criticism. But do you think that, I mean, during that period, a lot of members, and I know this just on a purely anecdotal level, I don't know this on a, on a, you'll know your own statistics, but on a purely anecdotal level, I read a lot of NAS members saying, we don't think NAS are serious about pushing for whether it be strike action, whether it be, you know, being a bit more radical um, in their approach and being a bit more loud. And many of them said, I'm switching, I'm switching to another union. What, what would you say to those people, and they have, what, what would you say to those people to try and get them back to NAS? Or would you simply say, well, it doesn't matter because we're all collectively in the same sort of education system? I think but they left specifically because of that. They didn't leave because they weren't happy with NAS in other respects. I think we've been very clear, and I think we will continue to be clear, that our priority is to make sure that the interests of members are put first. And those interests, I think, have been undermined hugely by what we've seen over the past 13 years from the policies of, of this government. We have a recruitment and retention crisis. Our members are in the front line of that. So I think what I would say to, to anyone who's interested, I think, in this issue is that, you know, and I'm not going to speak about uh, the positions that others might take, but from my union's point of view, what we're here to do is to defend and represent the interests of teachers, and leaders right across the UK. That's what I would say we have been doing, and that's what we'll continue to do. Do, do you think, in a general sense, that the unions, and I'm going to put them all in the same sort of bracket here, do you, there is that criticism where people have said, I say people, teachers and, and others, have said, we've missed a trick because we had the full engagement of all the, all the major unions going towards strike action which would have taken place. And suddenly there was, a, there was an announcement saying we've agreed to a deal. What Can you give me any insight into what happened in that period of time where there was this sort of sudden U-turn, if you like, because it seemed from all commentators' sort of point of view that we are heading towards strike action. We are heading towards trying to get a much bigger pay deal than the one that's been agreed. And then there was a, a sudden sort of U-turn, I mean, what, amongst all the unions. What happened? I think it's ultimately, because we're a democracy, so again, I can only speak for my organisation, not, not for others. Because yeah. of democracy, we're guided by the views of our members. So we're led by our members. The decisions are taken by representatives who are serving teachers who are in turn answerable to their membership. And they look at the situation and that's the decision that they reach based upon what's complex and difficult and contested, but that's the decision that, that they reach. So in a sense, the decisions that we reach, whatever it is, ballot for, for strike action, speaking to the government, whatever that is, that has to be informed by the views of the membership 
in general. So all the decisions we've taken all the way along in this dispute have always been informed by the views of our members and because they ultimately are the ones that make those decisions. Are you happy with the sort of position as it stands now or are you sort of still not happy but short of threatening to strike unhappy? I think from our point of view, it's not a great situation. I think we accept that. I think everyone accepts that we've got, you know, we talked about the recruitment and retention crisis. There are massive pressures. So we know there are concerns out there that the membership, that teachers and leaders have. So no one is content with the current situation. What our job is, acting on behalf of our members, is to make sure that we can get the best outcomes for our members possible. And we will go you know, as far as we need to go. We will speak to anyone in order to do that. We want to be constructive. Our members want us to be constructive. That's a very clear message. So, no, I don't think anyone is satisfied with teachers' pay, teachers' workload, um, the behaviour issues in, in many schools. There are lots of pressures. We see too few people choosing to become teachers and we see too many people having become teachers deciding this isn't for them they want to go and do something else that that's not good for our members it's not good for our education system either so we'll continue to make sure that we do everything that we can to secure the best possible outcome certainly for our members but also for the education system and its well-being just finance foundation proudly sponsors teachers talk radio for talk money week join us from saturday the 4th of november for a week of incredible guests and thought-provoking discussions on how teachers can talk about money in the classroom tune in be inspired and empower the future generation teachers talk radio sponsored by just finance foundation helping children manage money wisely visit our website for the schedule and details justfinancefoundation.org.uk are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. Do you think, though, that so if you were to compare to one or two other unions I can think of, um, you know, NEU, um, ASCL, 
possibly even NAHT. But would you say that that NAS is the least visible out of those major unions in terms of being loud, being seen, being you know, or would or would you disagree with that? I wouldn't. I wouldn't make the comparison. What I would say is that we are very clear in our messaging to our members. We're very clear about what it is we want to achieve. We listen to our members. Um, and really importantly, we act on the basis of what our members say. So we don't take cues off one or two pieces of commentary. What we do is we listen to those members and we act in their interest and on the basis of the messages and the experiences that they are sharing with us. So. I'm not going to compare. I'm just going to say from our point of view, we aim to be as clear and as purposeful in our communication as possible. Thank you. So let's move on to um, behaviour a little bit, because you mentioned that and it's a huge it's it, it's a huge issue. It, it has been a huge issue, but it's even more a huge issue when you see the sort of numbers coming out of surveys about teachers saying they've been assaulted or verbally abused and stuff like that. I saw one figure, it's like 93% or something. I think that was an NAS survey of, of members who said, you know, I've experienced X, Y, Z. Um, now, there is, you know, we've seen from NAS in various different instances, um, teachers in lots of different schools, I say lots, mm. but some different schools, going on strike over behavior and actually saying you know what we're going we're, we're going to strike action on this mm. and you know do, do you think that that's something that you as a union are you know that's one thing where you're going we're very much on board with this approach we we want teachers to take more ownership on on the way they feel and their safety and security we want them to push further on behavior well, I'm going to resist the invitation to make a comparison. I'll, I'll say that. I can only talk about my own organisation. And what I will say is that we are very clear on behaviour. So we're extremely clear and our members are very clear that you know, teachers can't teach and pupils can't learn in, in, in institutions or settings, schools, colleges that are disorderly, that aren't calm, that aren't conducive to learning. So from our point of view, the starting point is always when there's a problem to speak with those in power, those who can make decisions, to point out that problem and suggest what can be done to address those issues. Um, and often, most often, those conversations lead to the kind of improvements that lead to the better behaviour that I think we all want to see in schools. But there are instances where we're not able to reach that point where the decisions and these situations are always difficult, but where the decisions that could be taken aren't being taken, then we go to our members and we explain the situation to them. And we would say, look, there are things we think could be done in this set of circumstances. They're not being done. What should we do about that? And one of the things that members can decide, because it's industrial action, so therefore we're bound by all the legal requirements in respect of balloting, but ultimately, We'd want to do that anyway in respect of what our members think. So it's up to the members in the school. And if we ask the members in the school, is there some form of action you'd want to take to protect your interests in this set of circumstances? If the members say, yes, there is action that we think we should take, 
and we decide as, as the membership that we should take a proportionate form of action to advance our interests, then if members decide that, then that is what we will do. Members do that, I have to say, pretty much in my experience and all my colleagues' experience. Members do that very reluctantly because it really is a last resort for them. But ultimately, if the situation is so difficult, if things that could be being done aren't being done, then members will decide, and we absolutely back them to the hilt when they do, members will decide to take that action. Um, you must, you, and I know you said you wanted to avoid comparison. I totally understand that, but you are a member organisation, so I have to sort of talk to you about, you know, you know, one of your objectives will be to attract more members. And certainly, as I mentioned earlier, anecdotally about the teacher strike action, how some people saw uh, NAS as not being active enough on behaviour, anecdotally, I've seen teachers saying, you know, we're really pleased with the approach that NAS are taking. So you must be, you know, you must be happy from the perspective of, you know what, we we are we are doing something here and we are sort of tackling this issue head on um, because there haven't been as many, purely anecdotally, there haven't been as many um, high profile cases where um, where other, you know, that isn't comparing, that's just stating a fact. There haven't been as many high profile cases where members of other unions have, have gone on strike action over behaviour. Yeah, I think from, from our point of view, what pleases us most is when you have members in a school, we don't like the fact that they're often in situations in respect of behaviour that aren't acceptable. I mean, there have been some really unacceptable cases that, that we've dealt with. And when as a result of the action that, that we take, and we can only control what, what we do, we have the approach that we have, we take that action on behalf of our members, and it leads to a positive outcome. That, that's what we aim for. That, that's the objective. The objective is to make sure that at the end of the process, our members are working in safe, calm environments where their views and their concerns are listened to by the people within their organisation that have that decision-making power. When we get to that point, as far as we're concerned, that that's job done. And essentially, that is our thought process. So if we can do that for members in a school, we can ensure that we get behaviour in this case to where it needs to be and we can keep it there. So we carry on working hard to make sure that we are where we need to be. Then for us, that's satisfying and that's us doing our job. Do you think, okay, so on on the issue, sticking on the issue of behaviour for a moment, um, when you've seen issues being raised by members in different schools on behaviour, are there some sort of commonalities that you're seeing? Are there some things where you're going, this in, in this group of 50 schools or whatever mm. it might be, here's the most common things that are happening that teachers are unhappy with? Can, can you give me maybe two yeah. or three things each case is is different so each set of circumstances of course but and i mean just on just on average yeah. the things that yeah. are being raised the most so you, you know the, the the starting point it's an important point is that you've got to kind of make sure that your response takes account of those circumstances but i think there are some commonalities so when things go wrong there are differences there are some themes that tend to emerge quite consistently that seem to have led to a situation becoming 
you know, unacceptable. I think one of those, and this is a, a long-standing lesson, and it sometimes gets, gets forgotten, is that in schools that are good, so in schools where behavior is always going to be an issue, anyone who's ever taught, you know, you will always come across circumstances where you're going to have to manage behavior that's inappropriate. But in schools that are good, there's consistency. So there's a policy, there's practice that's in place. Everyone knows what it is. So everyone knows that behavior and maintaining good behavior is everyone's business. And that all the people that are involved or impacted by what the behavior is like in the school feel a sense of ownership of that policy. So it's not just a tablet of stone that descends from on high. This is what we are going to do. It's something that's built with everyone in the school. That certainly includes teachers, of course it does, but it includes everyone else who works in that school, it includes parents, it includes governors. So that sense of common ownership, when that consistency, what do we do here? And when that sense of common ownership is absent, that creates the circumstances where you are much more likely to see poor behavior. So putting that right involves putting those foundations back into place. As I say, they're all different, but that does seem to be a common theme. And the recovery from a bad place to a better place almost always involves recognizing that consistency. What do we do here? How do we manage behavior? And there are really good schools that manage behavior really well in very different ways, which I think is very interesting. But well, that consistency yeah. is really, really key. So when you ha don't have that, you often, that's a precursor often to behavior not being where it should be. Um, I'm going to quote uh, Patrick Roach, your, your president, who, who said, um, and I think this was in relation to Scotland in particular, yeah. He said there was there was an uh, quote, an over-reliance on often ineffective restorative approaches that have exasperated mm -hmm. physical and verbal abuse in schools. I wondered whether, because there, there does seem to be, and again, purely anecdotal on this, there have been people raising this sort of, I'm not going to, I mean, sanctionless is probably a bit well, too yeah. much of an extreme yeah. term, but we are seeing a trend towards certainly reducing the number and the uh, the severity of sanctions we're seeing a trend towards increasing uh, schools that are taking this this restorative approach this is an issue you've raised you've you've not necessarily said correct me if I'm wrong that restorative approaches per se are bad but what you have said is ineffective restorative approaches and you know these seem to be this seems yeah. to be a growing issue so I wondered whether you could talk me through a little bit what that means on the ground. I think it's the best way to start thinking about this is going back to what I said earlier, which is you have lots of schools that have really good behavior and approach that in, in different ways. There are different ways you can establish good approaches to behavior. I think with restorative approaches, one of the issues that, that we encounter is that many of the schools who perhaps say that they implement a restorative approach don't necessarily understand what a restorative approach is. And let me give you let me give you a really clear example of that. So one key element in what I think is commonly understood as a restorative behavior approach are what is known as restorative conversations. 
you know, I've seen those work really well. And what restorative conversations involve is perhaps say you've got a pupil who has acted in a way that, that's inappropriate. And you can have a restorative conversation with that pupil, which talks them through. So it's not about necessarily punishing that pupil. It's actually saying to the pupil, look, do you understand what, what you did? And do you understand why it upset those other children or, or that adult? And, you know, you explain they've got a right to come to school. So those other children who are upset by what you did, they've got a right to come to school and to be safe and to be not subjected to a particular part of you know a particular form of behavior that that's um, that's been unacceptable you talk to that student and then what you do is you work with that student to develop approaches and strategies so that they don't end up in that position in future so they understand clearly this isn't what i'm supposed to do this is what's expected if they need help and support to get to that standard they get access to that help and support that's really effective now some people do that and call it a restorative approach some people do that and just call it common sense, right? But, but you know, sometimes it's kind of labeled as a restorative approach. But the restorative approach is only going to be useful if that conversation leads to a change in behavior. So you need to kind of put the things in place that helps that student behave more appropriately. Sometimes with some uh, uh, restorative approaches, more often, the response to a restorative conversation not being acted upon is another restorative conversation. So you end up with a series of restorative conversations that don't really go anywhere. And the problem I think in those cases is that students sometimes develop an understanding that actually there's nothing, if I behave inappropriately, nothing really happens other than I have to sit through another restorative conversation where I've now learned what I'm supposed to say and what they want to hear. But then ultimately, I can go on and not think about reflect on my behavior. So whether it's about restorative behavior per se is is a debate. I think what we're driving at are approaches to restorative behavior that aren't effective. And the test of their effectiveness is are they contributing to maintaining good behavior and discipline in a school? And if they're not, then we need to think about what's happening. And those are the restorative approaches that we often come across that we are concerned about because they're not effective. How widespread do you think the kind of example you've just given is? Because it seems to be quite widespread. But I mean, I'm asking you sort of, how often are you hearing these sort of things from members? We hear them pretty often. I have to say, but I think it depends upon perhaps where you are in the UK. So if you were to go down, let's say, a restorative behaviour route in England, you can do that and people describe it as restorative. But it's kind of, if you if you like, it's sort of countercultural. So if you were to go on, let's say, gov.uk, DFE, look at their behaviour guidance. They're not saying do and don't use a restorative behaviour, but some of the approaches that are described as restorative behaviour go against the grain. They're not necessarily where most schools go in respect to behaviour. If you went to Scotland, for example, in Scotland there is, I think, a very clear official preference for what are commonly understood to be restorative approaches. So if you were to say... 
I'm not sure what I understand to be a restorative approach is working in my school. And I'd like to do something different. Again, that, that is appropriate, that's proportionate, that's humane, um, that has all the basic things that, that you'd want any behavior policy to have in place. But I think there's a different way of going about it. That goes in turn, in, in its turn in Scotland, that's going against the grain, I think, to some extent. So there are variations because we have a devolved education system in, in the UK. But so I think there are schools that, that, that do it. There are schools that we've come across that say, well, we absolutely want nothing to do with restorative behaviour at all. That's not for us. We don't want anything to do with that at all. And they still have really bad behaviour policy and practice. So their rejection of restorative behaviour hasn't been replaced with anything more effective. So you, we get schools that would say mm -hmm. to us, we're very strict on behaviour. We're, you know, we're absolutely... Um, you know, sometimes you hear people say we have a zero tolerance approach and all of that, all of that tough talk. Um, but when you go into the school, um, the absence of a restorative behaviour approach isn't really having much of an impact because there are whatever labels you want to attach to it. There are some basic fundamentals to go back to what we were just talking about that you tend to see in schools that get behaviour more right than others. Mm. Um thinking about you know um sort of the situation in scotland in particular um because it doesn't take you long to sort of find if you google behavior in scotland it doesn't take you long to find the reports for example of physical assault right um should what is the nas position on teachers being physically assaulted because one of the things i wanted to ask was should mm. a student who physically assaults a teacher, be excluded? That really depends upon the circumstances. So for us, the objective isn't exclusion as the end. Exclusion can be a legitimate means to that end. What I think we want to see in cases of that sort of violence is first of all, people have rights to work in a workplace and children have rights to attend a school where they're not at risk of physical violence. So what we want is that physical violence to be addressed. That can be difficult, that, that can be very difficult and children who perhaps um, have behavior that challenges, the reasons for that can be very complex and that really does need to be understood. Sometimes exclusion is the right approach. It, it is an approach and often it's really sad and perhaps tells us something about the state of investment in wider children's services over the past decade and 13 years, that sometimes it is the act of exclusion that triggers the support that the child should have had in the first place, which had they had that support, would never would have led to a set of circumstances where we wouldn't even be talking about exclusion because the needs of that child would have been addressed. Really sad, but you know, sadly, all too common. So exclusion isn't an end. We would never go into a school and we never say you must exclude X people or Y people. What we say, if we're in a case where there's uh, a an industrial dispute, is this has got to be addressed. Now, there are different ways in which it can be addressed. Let's explore what the options are. But ultimately, from our members' point of view, we would say they have an absolute right 
not to go into workplaces where the risks of physical violence aren't being addressed. Because there will, I'm sure there will be some teachers who, after a physical assault, would say, I'm not going to be in a classroom with that student until this is sorted out. But in many cases, purely anecdotally, that's not happening. You know, teachers are having to still sort of front it out, if you like, after post an assault. So I suppose my my question was not necessarily, you know, yes, exclude everybody. That wasn't necessarily what I was getting at. Mm -hmm. It was more, how do NAS protect teachers in that situation? If a teacher says, I've just been assaulted, I don't want to be in the building with the student who has assaulted me next yeah. week, tomorrow, next week, next month, whatever, mm-hmm. or, or or at the very least until something proper has happened. You know, what, yeah. what happens then for that teacher? Because I know teachers personally who that's happened with. I don't know whether they're members of NAS or not. No idea. But, you know, it's happened. Yeah. And they are sort of stuck. Yeah. You know, what, 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 what do they do? What does a teacher do in that situation? Well, if it, if it were a case involving NHWT members in a school, yeah, obviously we would be alerted to that by the member. So members have, you know, obviously they will come to us and say, look, this is this kind of situation that you've just described. For us, usually then it's going into the school and having that conversation with the school because the teacher who feels like that is perfectly entitled to feel like that. You understand why they feel like that. And they have a right to have those concerns addressed. What they shouldn't be doing is going back into the classroom in the same on the same day as a pupil that has assaulted them. So normally what happens is you go into the school and you can have a conversation with the people in the school or the academy trust or whatever it is who make the decisions. And most often common sense will prevail. They'll go, we absolutely, we, we, we get that. So there are arrangements that could be, can be put in place to make sure that that child isn't with that teacher so everyone is kept safe. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And what we then have to do is, because this is formally industrial action, we have to ballot our members um, for what we describe as refusal to teach action, which means that members then have the protection of a legitimate industrial um, dispute so they can refuse to teach that child. There was a case in 2003 went to the I think went to the Court of Appeal might have been the House of Lords it was called P versus NASUWT and we were challenged by an employer that said you can't take industrial action for that reason but we won um, and so that's now an established legal principle so if push comes to to shove and we're in a position where the only way we can get an employer that won't take the sensible decision which I think all right thinking people would probably take in those circumstances we can support our members through legitimate industrial action yeah no absolutely um and and when you say ballot members you you specifically mean members presumably within that school yes um within yeah so all all the teachers in that school would be balloted on you know teacher x has been That's assaulted right. they do not want to teach they don't want to be there with this student That's the school right. is refusing to cooperate we're now balloting do you right. will you go to strike over it that's right. So we well, it's not it's not a strike. It's, no. it's saying that we'll come in, Actually. we'll do our jobs, but but what we're not doing because the risk, the health and safety risk associated with teaching that pupil with unaddressed needs at this time are such that we can't allow our members to be put in that position until those issues are addressed. Why do you? Why is there is there a crisis 
of leadership in schools in in the UK, in England, because we've read, you know, fairly recently about variety of different sort of, um, I don't know how I would say it, but sort of policy decisions, let's say, by right. sort of schools or, or leadership teams that have adversely impacted, whether that be teacher workload or whether that be the way in which a teacher feels empowered to deal with behaviour or uh, even, you know, situations about the way that the, the teacher's room might be laid out or what is, you know, what is in the room. Um, is there a crisis going on here? I don't think crisis would be a fair description. So there are there are really good um, employers. There are really good leaders in, across the system. And most of our members work in schools that are are well led. Whenever you talk about leadership, you've got to talk about the pressures that leaders face, which are often intolerable for all kinds of reasons. School funding, the pressures on them, the threats of academization or rebrokering. Those pressures are, are, yeah. are, are enormous. We certainly, we certainly come across leaders and leadership teams that make what we would describe as the wrong decision. So you talk about behavior. They don't make the right decision in respect of behavior. They may have other considerations that they're trying to play in, but ultimately we think you should make decision X, not decision Y. So I don't think there's a crisis of leadership. What I, what I think there is a crisis of is a lack of support for many schools. So I think many schools are left, they're cut adrift. So one of the, one of the tragedies, I would say, of the last 13 years has not only been austerity and the lack of investment in education, in the education system, in wider children's services. It's been the kind of fragmentation and atomization of our education system where schooling should be something that's done collaboratively. Schools in a local community coming together to share expertise, um, to share resources, to make sure that schooling is seen as a common endeavor so that collaboration that collegiality a term we we like to use in the SWT not only within school but between schools we're all working together for a common purpose that was deliberately shattered by the government from May 2010 onwards not just collaboration between schools as well collaboration between schools between health services between children's social care services youth and community services, services for families. We've seen over 1,200 Sure Start children's centres. Whatever you think about the last Labour government, that was a clear success. I think like anyone who's looked at this would say that it was a massive achievement. All destroyed. And so you have a very atomised school system where schools as communities often feel cut adrift from all these services that surround them. Where we do have a crisis, I think, is in special educational needs and disabilities. But that's about lack of funding, of course. But it's also about the fact that the infrastructure, that team around the child, has been broken. And mm. sadly, it's going to take an awful long time to put that back together again. But it has to happen because we can't go on with an education system that is so atomized, that is so fragmented, that schools do feel very isolated. Do you want to move back to something more akin to the local authority, you know, and sort of like away from academization? Or is that is that nothing to do with it? Do you not really care about the, the system? Is it more about just the general thing? 
approach. Really, really care a lot about about the system. You can call schools academies. You can call, call what you want. Um, it's about what underpins all of that. And so local authorities have a really important. They have suffered hugely as a result of austerity. So the cuts in their funding, where before you had, let's take something like support for English as an additional language, something that, that people are really concerned about currently for very, very good reasons. Before 2010, that system wasn't perfect. Of course it wasn't, no system ever has been. But local authorities were able to develop and sustain sources of expertise, expert practitioners, that they were responsible for, but uh, from that that resource that all schools in a local community could draw upon in order to support their work with some of the most vulnerable children and young people in our society. That collective provision, that sense of common endeavor, that sense of sharing and pooling resources that we all have a common aim, that was all broken. It was it was fractured. Um, uh, and uh, as a result of policies uh, since May 2010. So we have to get back to a position where schools collaborate with each other. The government will say, well, they collaborate within these big multi-academy trusts. And very often they do. There, there's some good collaboration. I'm not arguing against that. But what matters is not just collaboration within those trusts. It's collaboration between those trusts. Schools serve their local community. They're part of that local community and they need to collaborate and work in partnership so that everyone works towards that common aim, that common goal. That principle, that public service ethos has been dismantled over the past 13 years. And that's what we need to build to put back. Let's circle because we're coming toward coming towards the end. So I want to ask maybe one or two more questions. The, the, the penultimate one. Um, we're running. We it was reported just last week, actually, in the in the Observer a few days ago about new teachers now going abroad. You know, more of them are sort of going through PGCE and then clearing off. And when I started teaching in two thousand and seven, that wasn't really a thing. It was, you know, you do your PGC, you do your NQT year, you make sure you've passed that, then you maybe do another couple of years, and then you maybe consider going international. But I just think now, especially since COVID, maybe the working practices have changed. So I don't know whether, I, I suppose my question, and you might know this based on your just pure data, like membership numbers or whatever, but, you know, how long is it until we actually run out of teachers? In this country, you know, because people, you know, it feels like it's been four or five years that commentators have been talking about this drain, not meeting the targets for training, not meeting that, you know, too many leaving, not enough coming in, etc. That conversation has been going on for a number of years now. Um, how long is it until we run out of teachers? What, what's, you know, where are we at with this? Do you know what, Tom? I asked that question once. And a, a statistician gave me a very long answer that I struggled a little bit to understand. But I think the, the gist of it was, well, you can never work that out. OK, right. So fine. I can't I can't put years in it because I think it is a good question. Um, but even if we can't answer that question, what we can be clear about is that what we said at the beginning is we've got too few graduates choosing to go into teaching. And the ones that are there have a very high propensity to, to leave. So they either leave or they're very clear that if they could, 
they they would want to leave. So that is un, unsustainable. You know, you say the last four or five years, and you, you're you're right. But actually, we gave evidence to the Education Select Committee back in 2015, where we oh, were it's been going forward. on for. I mean, you yeah, could argue it's absolutely. been going on. It was going on when I started teaching in 2007. Absolutely. I just think the last maybe four or five years, it's it's really it's intensified. Sort of, yeah, it's intensified. It has. Yeah. It has. I, I think. I think that's absolutely right. The 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 sad thing is, is that we know what's causing that. I mean, so the drivers of it are are very well established. It's pay. So we've seen massive real terms reductions in pay over the past thirteen years. It's also not just pay, but it's pay progression. So you know, you start at the bottom of the main pay range as a newly qualified teacher, as was early career teacher, as is now. And then you have a reasonable expectation that you progress, you advance your career. That's stymied, I think, in a lot of places. We know that workload is a huge driver of, um, of, of not only exit from the profession, but it's a deterrent to graduates thinking about becoming teachers. Something that isn't talked about a lot, but I think is really important, so I'm going to carry on talking about it, is access to professional development and training. So teachers want to develop their careers. They want to develop their skills. They want to make sure that they're able to make choices about how their career as a teacher will progress. And the access to professional development is limited. The quality of it is variable. Some good, good practice out there, no question. But not all of it is, is, is good. But also it's a lack of... When, when you say not all of it's good, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, what, what do, I don't understand professional development. Are we talking about private provision? Are we talking about internal provision through schools? What, what do you mean both by of that? Those, both of those can, can be great. I think where teachers identify problems with professional development is that it's not relevant to their, their needs. So it's something done to them, not done with them. So, for example, what's very common now is that professional development, and there may be a place for this, but it's massively disproportionate, is where teachers sit on their own online and flick through PowerPoint presentations that they haven't chosen, they didn't decide to do, but they, you know, they're told to do them. It's incredibly disempowering. So teachers aren't partners in their own professional development. And I think if you're a graduate, you've got aspirations about what you want your working life to look like. And if you're sitting in your front room at eight o'clock on a Tuesday evening, flicking through a series of PowerPoint presentations on whatever. Whilst listening you, to Teachers Talk Radio. Whilst listening to Teachers Talk Radio, absolutely. Of course, of course, of course. Um, that isn't what you probably imagined your working life to be. Really interesting. Lots of work is done about what do graduates want from a working life? What, what do they want? Because if teaching doesn't offer that, yeah. it's going to struggle. And a couple of things graduates really identify as important. One is a sense of empowerment. One is a sense that you have the ability to create your own career, to kind of make sure you can bring your skills, your talents, your expertise to a job and where you can make something of that, where you get that kind of uh, uh, reward. The other thing that I think they really place a lot of emphasis on is an appropriate degree of individual autonomy, an ability to make professional decisions based upon evidence and then be accountable for those decisions, of course, but having that decision-making power. If that's constrained, and if you don't feel that you're being able to exercise that autonomy, that's quite unattractive. And I think a lot of particularly newer entrants of the profession 
tell us that a lot. A lot of teachers who entered the profession having done another job previously, they really do tell us that very often. This isn't what it was like when I was doing this job or, or, or that job. Um, so those things contrive, I think, to make teaching not as attractive as, as it could be. So we know what all those drivers are. It's about governments doing something to address those concerns. There are things they could do which they aren't doing. But do you think one thing you haven't mentioned there, which I was sort of hoping you might, was was PPA? Because I think, you know, one of my sort of things, and I put this out, I've put this out at various points in the last couple of years, but I put a question out, which is like, um, if you could have a guaranteed minimum PPA a day or more, one or two maybe, whatever, to bring your teaching, your contact time in line with other countries around the world, particularly countries in Asia and various other places, you can look in Europe as well. If you were to have that as opposed to a substantial pay rise, now I'm not saying that you know this was a this was a question of I'm sure everyone would have answered both, please. Both, but please. This yeah. was a this was an either or question. Many more actually went with the PPA. M many more in this little anecdotal poll that I've run, I've run it twice have said more PPA, please. Less contact time, more time within the school day. Now, obviously, one of the one of the flip sides of that was, well, yeah, but you need teachers to cover that PPA or whatever, particularly in primary schools. It's a different kettle of fish. Um, but in secondary, you know, as well, it's like, OK, we need someone to cover mm. it. But equally, there could be ways around that. You know, you think about uh, the, the, the advances we've made in online learning and stuff like that over COVID. Yeah. But point I'm trying to make is just like, do you think that you and other unions got it right by putting all the focus and attention on teacher pay rather than, and do you think conditions, particularly PPA, things like that, have been a bit sidelined because now the government maybe has the chance to say, well, we've given you what you wanted. We've given you 6.5%. Yeah. Therefore, you can now shut up and yeah. behave yourselves because you've campaigned for, that's all you've talked about for a year or two. We've given you that. You've agreed to it. That should be the end of the issues now. Yeah. it's a, I, I completely get where your question is coming from. I think it's an important point. I think the evidence shows that, that teachers individually tend to weight these things differently. And there are certainly teachers who would place more weight on, let's say, the workload issue than the pay issue. I've got to tell you, there are lots of teachers who place number one weight on the, on the pay issue, particularly with the cost of living crisis, with all of those pressures. You know, I mean, I wasn't suggesting there weren't no, I the whole. I wasn't I suggesting there weren't a lot who said I'd prefer the pay, but I'm just talking yeah. over the overall picture. No, you're, you're, so it's all important. So you've got to get all of it, all of it right. Um, pay helps. Of course it helps. But workload helps as well. So PPA time, you know, Tom, you told me we had 45 minutes. If we had like six hours, he could go through all of it. But you're absolutely right to alight on PPA time um, because that's not been around forever. So you were saying you started teaching in 2007. I mean, yeah, that I think so when I, when I, so yeah. I started teaching in Wales. So I only moved to England in, 20, okay. uh, in 2013. Yeah. Okay. And I'm pretty sure when I moved to England, you had the 10%. In fact, maybe even when I was yep. in Wales, you had the guaranteed 10%. You, 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 you would have done, but it hadn't been introduced long before then. 
No. So it was a relatively recent introduction. And it was and rarely cover. I mean, I was taken for cover a 100%. lot at the start of my career, whereas as my career went on, I'm still teaching now part time. You, you know, the chance that you'd be taken for cover lessens significantly over time. All, all, all of those things are, are are really important. PPA time rarely cover. A lot of the changes in, in the contracts that were made in the 2000s were really important. They got us to a point around about 2007 where, you know, those kind of lists that people publish of, of you know, um, graduate career destinations of choice. And teaching was about was about third on that list. So it became a really attractive profession. In 2007, we weren't talking about a teacher recruitment retention crisis. You know, you would have had a lot of competition for the job that you got um, becoming becoming a teacher. It was really, I think, moving in that right direction. It's gone the wrong direction for pay, conditions of service, workload, all of that. It's gone, it's gone in the wrong direction generally since since um, May 2010. The good news though, the light on the horizon, as it were, the light at the end of the tunnel, is that you know it wasn't a magic trick getting teaching to where it was in 2007. It was a deliberate act of policy. It was about making sure that pay was attractive. It was about taking genuine steps meaningful steps to reduce workload it was about thinking it was by no means where it needed to be but trying to think a bit about things like professional development cpd it was on a positive trajectory and we need to get back on that positive trajectory so more graduates think about becoming teachers take that step become teachers and once they become teachers they stay in the profession much more than sadly we're seeing at the moment do you think like because 10% is the sort of like, that's that was the gold standard, wasn't it? It has been the gold standard for a yeah. while. It's like 10% PPA. In your dream world, what would be your percentage where you would say, that's a good percent, that should be the gold standard now, today? Well, our union's policy is 20%. So we'd say 20% PPA time, I think, would strike the right balance it would make a massive difference to, to teacher workload it would create all kinds of opportunities not least for things like you know um uh, teachers conducting their own research having just more time teachers tell us all the time what they want is just more time to think to think about what it is they want to do thinking about teaching and learning thinking about the needs of their pupils it creates a really good piece of thinking time so we're 20 percent absolutely um but i'm afraid in many schools just getting to that contractual entitlement of 10% can be a bit of a battle. There are lots of teachers out there. Our surveys show it. There are other surveys that show it as well. But teachers, even though they have a contractual entitlement to 10%, aren't even getting that 10%. So PPA time, I, there are lots of teachers, I think, Tom, who would uh, share the emphasis that you place on it as important. We think it's also very important. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the sort of answer to that is in, in the sense of like, you know, how that pans out. It's just something mm. that, you know, it would be nice maybe, for, and this is just purely talking me personally here, to hear more talk of it, um, you know, from policymakers rather than, you know, you hear if you were to tally up the times that pet, the word pay is mentioned yeah. versus PPA, I bet it would be about 100 to 1. It would just be nice to make it, you know, 70 to <laughs> if, that's, if, that's, if that's a call for people like me and people across the teacher union movement to put more emphasis on PPA time, uh, I'm not going to fight you on that, Tom. I'm going to say that's a, that's a good point to make, and we will make sure 
that we emphasize it. And if we have to emphasize it more, we'll do that because you're absolutely spot on. It's really important and it makes such a difference to the working life of a teacher. Darren, I think, as I say, it's been a pleasure. Um, well, I could have really enjoyed it, Tom. Thank for a you. lot longer, really good conversation. Thanks ever so much for giving up um, a bit of your time today to do it. Um, and yeah, maybe we'll we'll talk again soon. So yep, thanks love, very much. love to do that, Tom. Thank thanks, you very Darren. much. Thanks a lot. Cheers. See you.